Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who learns the identity of the billionaire Raj and in my spare time, figuring out the startup and business ecosystem in India. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have James Crabtree, author of his new book, The Billionaire Raj and Associate Professor in the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in National University of Singapore. Welcome, James, and it's great to have you here for the first time. Thanks so much, Ronald. It's lovely to be here. Yes, and I have read your book during my vacation two weeks back, and I really enjoyed it, and it's so good to have you on the show here. So I wanted to start off by getting to know you better. How did you start your career? I grew up in the northeast of Scotland. My dad was an academic who was an economist. And so he moved up there to the university. I studied in London. And then my career has been a bit of a mishmash between working in policy and working in media. So I worked for various think tanks in London. I worked for the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. I got a policy master's degree at the Kennedy School of Government. Uh, but I always wanted to live abroad, and I always liked the idea of being a foreign correspondent. So I, in the back of my mind was always the idea that at some point I'd like to be a journalist writing in a foreign country, and India was always that that dream posting. And so um, about uh, 10 years ago now, I was working as a journalist in London, and I was hired by the FT, and then I was able to persuade the FT to send me to India, and that was the the backdrop out of which this book came about. And by FT, you mean the Financial Times? That's right. Yeah, the British business newspaper, which is one of the, you know, has the one of the best staffed foreign desks of, of any newspaper. And so um, between 2011 and 2016, I was there. Mumbai bureau chief. So I covered Indian finance, all sorts of different parts of the Indian business world. And I lived in, in Mumbai, the financial capital, which is the home of uh, most of India's billionaire class. And that was how I came to be interested in this subject. Yes, I'm also a subscriber of the Financial Times for the last 10 years. And of course, I wanted to ask you, you have a very interesting career working in policy as an editor and also now at an academic. What are the interesting lessons that you can share with my audience in terms of your career journey? Well, that's an interesting question, Bernard. I mean, I sort of feel like my career path is slightly all over the place. I've, I've never really been able to decide whether I want to do writing or policy. I've always been passionate about both things. I mean, I have this urge to write about the world, not about not fiction, but nonfiction. But I've always been fascinated by policymaking. And I suppose the, the lesson of my career and so far as there is one is that you can kind of move back and forth between different worlds. You don't have to stay in just one place. You know, I suppose at heart, I think I probably found out that I'm really a journalist. That's sort of what makes me tick. But I worked for the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit in the UK under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. I've worked in and around policymaking processes. And so I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by both worlds. And in a funny way, now in Singapore that I'm teaching at a policy school, I've taken a step back towards the, the world of public policy. So uh, I, I think in a sense, for me at least, this is a feature, not a bug of my career, that I'm going to move back and forwards between this world. And I, and I think maybe that's something that I think can be true for others, that you don't have to be interested in just one thing, that a, a good career well spent will often allow you to move back and forth between different things that interest you. So what is your current role and coverage of the topic in the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy? Well, so I'm an associate professor in practice at the school. I came here two and a half years ago on sabbatical to write the book. And the idea was that I would go back to the financial 
financial times after that. But unfortunately, I decided I rather liked my sabbatical too much to want to go back to daily journalism. So I love the teaching here at the school. And um, for those of your listeners who don't know, the Lee Kuan Yew School is a, it's a bit like a, a place where you come to get an MBA for politics. It's it was modeled originally on the Kennedy School. It's a bit like the Kennedy School of Asia. So it's for 25 year old students who've worked for a while and want to come and get a master's in public policy. And so I teach a couple of courses here, not actually related to India. I teach one on the, the financial crisis, the causes and consequences of the financial crisis. And I teach another one on communications and leadership, trying to teach young leaders in public service how to become more persuasive in the way that they think about implementing policy. And I also sit within a think tank called the Center on Asia and Globalization, which does work on everything from the future of trade policy to China's Belt and Road. So it's very general. I mean, most academics are quite specific in their subject area. But as I say, I'm a natural journalist and I move back and forth between different things that interest me. And so in that sense, the school suits me very well. And it provided a good platform from which to both research and then to promote my book, The Billionaire Raj. Before I get to the book, I just read a column of yours yesterday in the Financial Times on crazy rich Asians. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what your thoughts on the movie is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I saw this was coming out. And in a sense, my book is about crazy rich Indians. And so when I saw that the Crazy Rich Asians movie was coming out, and I was living in Singapore, I thought, well, I have to write about this. This is this is fascinating. And I suppose there have been a lot of so the movie for those of your listeners who may not be aware, I'm sure almost everybody is, is the film of the the, the book of the same name about a, what an Asian American girl and a Singaporean man who start dating and she doesn't know that he is the son of the richest family in Singapore, one of the richest families in Singapore. So it was a very successful book. And I think the movie is going to be very successful. I saw it at a, I saw a preview screening last week. And I have to say, it's, it's great fun. I think people in Singapore in particular are going to love it. However, while there had been a lot of commentary about the casting of the movie, specifically the fact that it, the, the cast is entirely Asian, which for a Hollywood movie is very unusual. It's the first time in a generation that that's happened. I was much more interested in what the movie told us about the nature of the Asian super rich. And in a sense, the fact that the gravity of the world's super rich, high net worth individual population is moving very rapidly, not just to China, but to, to India and Southeast Asia. So if you look at the numbers, this is pretty clear that uh, both in terms of the billionaire rankings and other ways that extreme wealth it is soon predominantly going to be an Asian phenomenon. And so I thought the movie was an interesting way of shining a light on, on that. But mostly, I think, you know, I, so this was in the Financial Times. Yesterday, I wrote a cover story about that. And you were asking about my career. I mean, that's one of the fun things that my current position allows me to do. I can still, if I see something that interests me, whether it's going to China to learn about Chinese technology companies or a movie about super rich Asians, I mean, I can still write about that for newspapers like the FT. I wrote for the New York Times about the Trump-Kim summit uh, in Singapore. But on the other hand, I have the opportunity both to, to teach and to do slightly more substantial pieces of research. So it's a, it's a nice balance that I have here in Singapore. So today we talk about your book, The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's Gilded Age. I've read the book and I think I felt that after reading the book, I had a better understanding of why India, unlike China, has not evolved a startup ecosystem that actually create new generation of billionaires and also how the business ecosystem actually works within India itself. But since I have the author here, I wanted to ask you what inspired you to work on the book? 
So I arrived in India in 2011. I lived in Mumbai, as I said, the financial capital. My background wasn't particularly in writing about business. I'd never never been a business journalist. I had written about you know, politics and public policy. And I suppose the business world that I found in India was just entirely different from any that I had ever really come across before in terms of the types of company and the people who ran them. So if you think about your typical Western company, this is run by a fairly conservative, typically a man, but uh, you know these are public limited companies, they're quite boring, the people who run them play golf and go home to the suburbs on the weekend. And then you arrive in India, and the backbone of India's fast developing economy is controlled by these uh, huge industrial conglomerates, typically headed by, you know, owned by a family, headed by one individual. Now, your listeners are predominantly in Asia, so this doesn't sound so unusual. This is true in Malaysia, it's true in large swathes of Southeast and East Asia that this form of business dominates. But the, the idea of the tycoon was something that I found particularly fascinating. I was in India at a moment of extraordinary change. India began its development path a little bit later than China. When I arrived in 2011, it had just finished an economic boom and was beginning to go through a period of slightly, you know, a bit more of a crunch. And I, I saw I, both I was fascinated by the, 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 the quantity of wealth that was being amassed and also by the people who were amassing it. And I was interested in two things, you know, who were these people, the new billionaire class? What, what were they like? What did it mean for India to have a development path that was being defined by these types of companies? Through your book, I've interpreted India in a different way. What are the major themes or lessons that you want your audience to learn from reading your book? So there are three fault lines that I talk about in the book, which are, I think, important if India is going to be able to try and follow countries like Thailand or Malaysia or Singapore and move quickly from being a poor country to being a middle-income country and then hopefully a rich country. Uh, the first of which is inequality, in particular the consequences of the new super-rich. So India has become or added wealth at the top of its society as quickly as almost any country in history. This is partly measured by the, the number of billionaires. There were only two of them in the mid-1990s. There are now something like 120, which is more than any country apart from um, the United States or China. And with this rise of wealth at the very top has come a much wider uh, inequality. Now, that doesn't mean that India isn't helping people escape from poverty. In fact, actually, India has quite a good record of poverty reduction right at the very bottom. But it does mean the gap between the top and the bottom is growing. And for various different reasons, this can be problematic. Countries in Eastern Asia tended to be more egalitarian than India when they were when they were growing. And the two other themes of the book, one is crony capitalism and corruption. I think maybe your listeners will know that India has had a big battle against corruption that is really only half won. And then the, the third is the boom and bust cycle of India's industrial economy. Uh, at the moment, the country, having had a big economic boom in the middle of the 2000s, is still only really recovering from that. They have lots of problems of corporate debt. The banking system is in a bit of a mess. But that's to make the book sound quite serious. Um, in the end, that wasn't the kind of book that I wanted to write. The book is, is fun. It's a portrait of the characters who are remaking India. And so I talk about the um, billionaire Mukesh Ambani, who is the, the richest man in India, whose house, uh, the billion dollar home is on the front cover of some of the, the editions of the book. I go to London and meet uh, Vijay Malia, one of the most charismatic of the Indian billionaires whose roller coaster career really defines the ups and downs of India over the last 10 years. I meet the most famous television journalist, the, the kind of Sean Hannity of India. I talk about cricket, politics, all, all sorts of big characters. So in a sense, the 
although the book has a serious argument about these three fault lines within it, it's meant to be a, an enjoyable portrait for somebody who, you know, for people who don't know that much about India. So from reading the book, the business world have a lot of intrinsic links to the political world. Can you talk about how the business ecosystem have evolved with respect to the political system since its independence to today? And what do you refer as the new Gilded Age in India, which you describe in the book? So before 1991, since independence, so go back to 1947, that's when the British left. So like Singapore, India used to be a British colony. The British left in 1947. And for about 40 years after that, India created a closed socialist economy. So almost the opposite of Singapore. And that did its economy very little good at all. It grew very slowly. It, it opened up again in the early 1990s, but it was really only in the mid 2000s that the economy really took off. I know that some of your listeners are interested in technology policy. And so initially when India opened up, it appeared as if its new era was going to involve, you know, sort of fairly positive market economy in which particular sectors like IT outsourcing and software development were going to be sources of wealth creation. And so in the early years, in the 1990s, you had a range of new figures in the tech sector who appeared to be the new giants of the Indian economy. But as you said, in the mid-2000s, there was a new phase that was marked much more overtly by what I would call crony capitalism, which was the collusion between the business and the political elite. So that was when you started to get very, very fast growth, but also a range of different corruption scandals in, in which businessmen were trading on their political links in order to advance their economic prospect. That created a whole series of scandals. I tell the story of this in the book. And in a sense, India is really only now beginning to try and recover from that period. The election of Prime Minister Narendra Modi in 2014 was a reaction to that. And he's been in power for four years. And, and in a sense, the, the main story of India's economic development has been its attempt to move beyond that period of very high growth, but rampant corruption. The reason why the book has the subhead, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age, is that India's current moment bears a number of similarities with what happened in the United States after the American Civil War. So the period between about 1865 and the turn of the 20th century, 1900, is often known as America's Gilded Age. That it was a period you know, in which America was a young democracy, moving quickly from being an agrarian economy to being an industrial one. It grew more quickly than ever before or since. It invested very heavily in infrastructure, built railways and canals, and it had mass migration from villages to towns and very, very corrupt urban politics. And so if you look at India in the middle of the two thousands, many of those things also appeared to be true. You had huge increases in wealth. You had the beginnings of a rapid and ongoing process of urbanization, uh, which will see some 300 million people move from villages to towns and cities over the next 20 or 30 years. Very corrupt politics. And so in a sense, the, the what I call the billionaire Raj, this is India's period of rapid growth creation and corruption is quite similar to America's Gilded Age. So the book began with the Ambani family who controlled the Reliance Group, an Indian conglomerate headquartered in uh, Navi Mumbai, India. The, the story is very interesting because I have covered Reliance from the point of Reliance Joe, the telecommunication services that they have launched uh, three years back, and it actually changed the dynamics of the whole telco industry, not just India, but the rest of the world. I think the story of this family is interesting because it has this Cain and Abel story behind. Can you talk a little bit about the story of Reliance founded by 
Dhirubhai Ambani and then followed by his two sons who are the two major characters in the Indian business world today Mukesh and Anil Ambani and why their feud forced the whole India to take sides. Yeah, so Dhirubhai Ambani was uh, a fascinating figure. He came of age in, during India's socialist era. He was a self-made man. Uh, famously, he worked for Shell as a petrol pump attendant in Yemen. He left his home in India, moved to Yemen and you know, started trying to work to become a trader. And he gradually set up this company called Reliance Industries, which grew from nothing to be India's largest private sector listed business. Its main areas of petrochemicals and oil refining, although it, it, being an Indian company, it did all sorts of other things. And Dhirubhai Ambani was a master at working the system of rules that existed prior to India's liberalization. So this was known as the, the license Raj. For those of your listeners who find this a bit confusing, the word Raj means rule and is often used in India as a sort of as a word that means government. And so license Raj is used to describe the, the socialist era, which was a, a world in which businesses were heavily controlled by tariffs or production quotas or licenses, which said what you could make and what you couldn't make. And so Dhirubhai Ambani was a master at using his political connections to find a way around these restrictions that were meant to keep businesses in check. And so he became very prosperous. He also flourished in the years after liberalization. He wasn't India's first billionaire, but he was amongst the first two or three. And he pretty quickly became India's richest man. And then that was a mantle that he passed on to his eldest son, Mukesh Ambani, that Mukesh Ambani has basically held ever since. And so even though India's economy has changed almost beyond recognition in the last sort of 20, 25 years, the Ambani family and the fact that they are the predominant business dynasty in India have been this this rock of stability. They've been there right from the beginning. And, you know, they're, they're sort of unsurpassable as the richest family in India. Uh, part of the reason why they became this incredible dynasty, as you mentioned, was that when Dhirubhai Ambani, the father, passed down his legacy, he, he handed it to his two sons, Mukesh Ambani, the elder, and Anil Ambani, the younger. And the two of them initially appeared to get on, but then didn't get on. And they fought an extraordinarily bad-tempered public legal battle, which began in shortly after after their father's death in 2002, and really went on for the best part of a decade, off and on. It was described as a kind of Cain and Abel battle. And as you say, I said in the book that it, it, it was almost the definitional event of India's post-independence business battle, because it forced everyone in the country to take sides. This family was so powerful, it, it sort of divided not just the business elite, but also the political elite as well. So in the end, they the, the two brothers made their peace, and subsequently, the elder brother, Mukesh, has gone on to become very, very successful. And as you mentioned, has recently become almost all the more interesting by investing a gigantic amount of money, something like $30, $35 billion in a new fourth-generation mobile telecoms business, while his brother's businesses have really not been very successful at all. And so he has been a kind of declining force. Nonetheless, the Ambani name remains extraordinarily powerful in India. And the fact that I began my book by talking about the Ambanis and in a sense being critical of their business legacy is something that a lot of people in India thought was a bit risky. And the billionaire Raj, as in the title of the book, is actually referring to the Ambani family. Did I get it right or wrong? Not, not quite, no. In a sense, if the, the billionaire, if the licensed Raj was the, the old world that described the system of socialism, I suppose I'm claiming that the billionaire Raj is the new world that India finds itself in. So that is one that is 
characterized by extreme wealth creation at the top, problems of crony capitalism, and an unstable investment model. And so it, although, in a sense, Mukesh Ambani, and in particular, his home in Mumbai, which is on the cover of some editions of the book, it's a building called Antilia, I mean, it's a residential skyscraper that, that some of your listeners will, will probably be aware of that is known as the, the first billion dollar home. Uh, and it rises above the slums of, of southern Mumbai. In a sense, that stands as the icon of the billionaire Raj. It is the building that most obviously represents the kind of change that I'm talking about. But no, the title of the book is not simply about the Ambani's. It's more about the, the phenomenon of the Indian super rich more generally. And so I want to switch gears and talk about some of the other billionaires who have emerged in the Indian business ecosystem. I'm very curious about this company called Infosys, which emerged in the late 1990s to the early 2000s as a champion of technology outsourcing with a lot of its major clients coming from the United States. Why has it not created a generation of internet entrepreneurs until 2013 then? Well, so I'm not sure that's quite right. Uh, I mean, in a sense, the, the bit of the Indian economy that I'm writing about tends to be the old industrial core of the economy. You've got to remember that India is still quite a poor country. And so it's going through that period in its economic history where it has to do what China did over the last 10 or 20 years, you know, build the roads and railways and power stations and steel mills upon which a normal industrial progression is based. But but India does at the moment have quite a vibrant startup ecosystem. I covered a lot of this when I was in Mumbai. I used to go down to Bangalore and write about Indian startups. Now, it is true to say that India has not developed a new generation of startups in the same way that, that China has. So there's not an Indian Alibaba or an Indian Tencent. But that's partly because India is a much more open economy. It hasn't put the, the walls up as China has. And so in a sense, the, the Indian Alibaba and Tencent are Google and Facebook and Twitter. For the American internet giants, although they don't make a lot of money in India, for all of them, I think now it would be fair to say that India is their largest market by users. Now, so you asked about Infosys. Uh, Infosys, in a sense, was one of the, the companies that I was talking about from the previous generation. So they were set up in the 1980s, but really came to prominence in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And so they are an IT outsourcing company. There are a handful of other big Indian IT outsourcing companies, uh, Wipro, Tata Consultancy Services. And so these companies help large multinationals typically run and install their IT systems. Um, and they do so from centers based in India. So when you talk about outsourcing, that's what you mean. So they, in a sense, were part of a previous generation of wealth creation. And in a sense, I have no particular problem with that. I mean, as I say, I used to be a business journalist. I worked for the FT. I worked for Tony Blair. I have no particular issue with wealth creation and people making money as long as they do it the right way. And it, it seems to me that the IT sector in India has much to recommend it. And so I suppose I hope that in the future, the vibrancy of the startup scene at the moment in cities like Bangalore and Hyderabad goes on to create many more technology billionaires. And I think, broadly speaking, that would probably be a good thing. And I thought this is interesting, right? Because in the top US companies, you see a lot of Indian CEOs, but you don't see a lot of Chinese CEOs in US companies. But it's also partially because of the fact that a lot of these very talented people, they prefer to build their careers in the United States and not back in India. I'm not sure it quite works that way. Typically, the CEOs are not, uh, they're members of the Indian diaspora. I'm not, for Sundar Pichai, I, I'm not, I think actually he may have grown up in India, but typically it's not that they themselves have emigrated. It's often that their parents have emigrated. But either way, 
the Indian diaspora in the United States, and in particular in Silicon Valley, is very, very successful. Uh, I mean, more successful than the Chinese and the Taiwanese diasporas, which are the two other prominent technology diasporas. So there are various reasons for this. But, you know, there are lots and lots of South Asians in Silicon Valley. And some of those are members of a kind of longer diaspora. They're children of people who moved and some of them went over to the US having done, you know, the classic path would have been that these are very, very bright kids who make it into the, let's say, the Indian Institute of Technology in Delhi, which is the elite academic institution in India. And then you go on from there to do a master's degree or a PhD in the US, and then you end up in Silicon Valley. So, I mean, in Indians in the US have done very well. And increasingly, that works the other way, that people come back home. And they're, they're, as I say, that's a reason for optimism about India's future, that there is strong connections now between the Indian tech ecosystem in Bangalore and Hyderabad and on the outskirts of Delhi and Silicon Valley. The problem, however, is there are a lot of people who expect that India will go on and mimic what China has done. So China has had this extraordinary technological flourishing over the last 10, 20 years, but particularly the last 10 years that has created Baidu and Alibaba and Tencent and Meituan and, and, and these gigantic companies. Didi is one that I came to know relatively well because I wrote a cover story for Wired magazine about them earlier in the year. But you have to remember that India is still a much poorer country than China. Um, its GDP per capita is barely $2,000 a person as opposed to somewhere between eight dollars and $10,000 for China. Its infrastructure is still in a you know an early stage of development. And so even if you have fantastic technology businesses, in the end, if you want to run a company like Amazon or a, or a business like Uber, you still need a, a rich, prosperous middle class to buy from you and you need good infrastructure to run on. And, and so India, India's technological growth is going to be slower than China's uh, for that reason until it, until it becomes a, a richer country. So sometime around 2013, the India technology startup ecosystem has started to emerge and recently Flipkart has been acquired by Walmart from the US. And Paytm is now backed by N Financial, which is a subsidiary of Alibaba Group and SoftBank. Will the new titans of the India business world emerge from this new tech boom? Or it could be also that there might be still the influences of old money that will still come into play to influence the tech sector. Oh, I think it's going to be a bit of both. I think that as technology becomes a more and more important part of every sector in the Indian economy, then the power of the new tech entrepreneurs is going to grow. But but in a sense, you yourself, think about Mukesh Ambani. I mean, in a sense, he is now the most prominent tech uh, sort of entrepreneur in India, having set up Reliance Geo. He's a very, very powerful figure. There's currently a big battle going on about the rules that will govern Indian e-commerce in the future that, that a company like Amazon, for instance, has to work under. And a large part of that is because the supposition is that Reliance want to move into this area and, and to turn itself into a kind of digital conglomerate. And so it isn't just that, in a sense, the, a new generation of billionaires might or very rich people with successful businesses might emerge wholly out of the tech sector. There will be some of that, but equally the businesses that have traditionally tried to dominate Indian business will try and move the other way. You know, on the other hand, India is still, as I say, it's still quite a poor country. So there's no getting around the fact that when you're a, an early developing economy, you need to build roads and ports and, you know, have iron ore mines and that kind of thing. And so th these are not the kind of activities that 
companies like Ola, which is the competitor to Uber, or Flipkart, the competitor to Amazon, are going to get into. So, uh, I mean, I think India's economy will grow in, in different ways in different sectors. And while the tech sector will become more prominent over time, that doesn't mean it's going to entirely displace the more traditional backbone of the Indian industrial economy. Which comes to my next point. I think you have already alluded to it. A lot of people looked at India as if they are the next major market after China. China has its own BAT and now TMD. When BAT, we talk Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and TMD is Total, Meituan, Dianping, and Didi. I think the infrastructure and the macroeconomic conditions are very different between both countries and I've always seen it very differently. Do you think that India will eventually still have its own homegrown champions given that it's such an open market where US companies such as Facebook, Google, Amazon can just enter the market without this type of strong regulation and protectionism faced when they, as of when they are in China? Well, I think it's pretty clear that India is going to have a much more of a mixed economy between global tech giants and domestic tech giants. You know, it's hard to have a more different system than China. And China have put up the barriers and, and in a sense they have at this stage, at least, won the, the benefits of that decision. Although in the in the long term, at least there are theoretical reasons to think that India's decision to keep its technological infrastructure more open may also have um, advantages in terms of investment, in terms of innovation. So it's hard to tell. I mean, in the end, you have a series of sectoral battles going on at the moment. So Amazon is fighting it out with Flipkart, backed by Walmart, as you say. Uber is still fighting it out against Ola. But these are funny battles. I mean, in the end, it's not clear whether only one of them can survive or whether some of these markets will end up being duopolies. And often they're peculiar in the sense of, you know, take the battle between Ola and Uber in which a figure like SoftBank, in a sense, looms behind both parties. And so, you know, in the end, it may be that as has happened elsewhere in the world, particularly here in Singapore, there's some kind of deal to manage this. So, I mean, I, I, it's hard to tell exactly how this is going to, to play out in terms of the balance between indigenous Indian companies and foreign companies, some of which are American, but some of which will be Chinese. I mean, in the end, you mentioned Paytm, which is controlled by Ant Financial. There are a bunch of different ways in which Alibaba in particular, but other Chinese companies in the consumer internet space, but also in the you know, electronics and manufacturing space are beginning to move very heavily into India and elsewhere around Southeast Asia. So it's not so much that it will simply be American companies. There, are, you know, India is a place where the, the best technology companies around Southeast Asia and in China are, are looking as well. And I think the result of that will, will be a, a mixed economy that's unlike anything that we've seen before, that is a technological giant with a gigantic consumer population and one that is served by a mishmash of the world's best technology companies. So both US and China tech giants have enter India with major investments and competing for the Indian customer. And the US companies prefer to build their own, such as Amazon, Google. But while the Chinese companies are now investing in the local champions, my question is in the longer term, whose approach will actually win the war? I mean, the battles are current, but I think that there will be certain dynamics at play as well. Oh, that's very difficult to say. I mean, in the end, the Chinese companies, it's not clear that this is just a kind of deliberate strategy. I mean, in the end, this is a tactical measure that they're doing what they can in India. They, they don't want to sort of set up on their own. For instance, it would be silly, I think, for um, one of the Chinese companies to try and take on from scratch Amazon and Flipkart, both of which have a huge head start. And so the fact that Alibaba has invested in Paytm and decided to try and do this as a payments first 
play seems pretty sensible. Uh, to be honest, I have absolutely no idea which of these models is going to work. What, what I do know is that you know India is a very tough market for a range of reasons. It, it's much tougher than either America or China because the customers are much poorer, much more value conscious, and in a sense, similar to China, they're, they're not particularly loyal to any one provider. And so that means that any successful business has to be run on wafer-thin margins and suffers the the risk that even if you build up a sizable customer base, that sizable customer base can disappear pretty quickly if, if one of your competitors offers a kind of marginally better price point. So it's a brutally competitive market. That's been true. That's the history of Indian telecoms, where you know the, the Indian telecoms market is the second largest by numbers after China. But almost none of these companies have ever made a profit or, or they, they make very marginal profits simply because it's so competitive and the Indian consumer is so bargain hungry. And I think that will be true for these other tech sectors as well. So in a sense, the success of the most successful companies will be the ones that are able to construct models that are ultra low cost and deliver value on very low margins because that's what Indian consumers want. You talk about the Indian customer, which I want to drive back to one of the major themes of your book, which is the topic of inequality. My final question is, what will be the way forward for India to bridge the current inequality between the rich and the poor? Well, that's a very complicated question, but it has some fairly simple answers, I mean, or rather some fairly simple points of direction. You know, in, in the end, a country like India is not going to end up like Sweden. It isn't going to be egalitarian or not for a long time. What worries me is that when you compare it to countries in Eastern Asia, as I said before, it is much more unequal now than most of them were. And so what do you begin to do about that? Well, you have to make sure that those of those of your population who are rich or in, in the upper middle classes pay taxes. Very few people in India pay taxes. The tax system is not particularly progressive and that they pay a fair share in other ways. And then you need to begin to construct systems of social support, which will help people who are working in agriculture and still half of the people in India, roughly speaking, work on the land. You need to construct systems by which they can move profitably off the land and into more productive kinds of activities, either in manufacturing or services, and in which their lives are slightly less precarious, find ways to give them a reasonably good basic education, healthcare for when they get sick, beginnings of a pension system, that sort of thing. And so if you do that, that, that is how Eastern Asia began to equip its population to take part in companies that were part of the the global economy. Now, there's a whole range of other things that India needs to do. It's an incredibly difficult place to run a business. It has problems of basic infrastructure. You know, the, the list of problems that need to be overcome look very daunting. And and I suppose the argument in my book, however, is that, that in addition to these more these sort of more minor changes, that if you don't solve the problems that, that I outline in the Brilliant Arage, namely this yawning inequality, cronyism, and the way that that distorts investment and changes the way the economy works and find a, a more stable way to invest, then it's quite difficult to imagine India moving quickly to become a, a, an upper middle income and rich country. But if you do fix these things and, and you do the things that other countries have done before, then there's no particular reason why India can't follow that path. So I, I end by saying that, you know, that this is a moderately optimistic book, that there are plenty of countries, including the United States in its own gilded age, 
that struggled with these issues and, and managed to find a way past them. So it's not, um, it's not impossible. Many thanks, James, for coming on the show and talk to me about the book. And I really enjoyed reading the book during my vacation. And I really recommend my listeners to actually go out and get the book. And of course, in closing, I would like to ask two questions. My first question is, can you recommend a book, podcast or anything else that has impacted your life, whether it's work or personal? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. On these sorts of topics, I mean, there are a bunch of podcasts that I listen to. There's a very good podcast run by an organization called The Diplomat, which deals with Asian geopolitics. So if your listeners are interested in the kind of shifting balance of power between China and India and the United States, that's um, that's very good. In terms of India, uh, the book that I read that really got me into um, Mumbai it was a book called Maximum City. Um, and that was written about 10 years ago now. And that's about Mumbai itself and its heritage and, and how it came to be such an exciting and exhilarating city, the strange mixture of politics and business. And so although that's not a, a business book per se, it's beautifully written and absolutely fascinating introduction to a certain side of India. And I'd recommend that thoroughly. How do my audience find you, Dan? Your audience can find me probably on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm always happy to add new connections on LinkedIn. And I post there quite often. I have a public Facebook page as well. And I also am on Twitter. So any of those, uh, any of those things, I also have a, an email a newsletter that I put out from time to time, you can find details of that on LinkedIn as well. And you can Google me at Bernard Leong, or you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast and everything else. And of course, you can tweet to me, you can also give us a five star on iTunes for discovery and a star on Overcast and Pocket Cast. And of course, you can always send your feedback directly to me. And of course, recently we started up a Telegram group. So you can also directly after listening to the show, just go there and post your comments as well. We are still growing slowly and we wish that you can join us in building this community. So once again, James, I definitely want to get to you back to talk more about your views on China tech giants and also the other parts of your book that which I think we couldn't be able to cover today. Many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speaking to you again. Very good. Thank you so much, Bernard. That was great.